Uh, today we are in Amos chapter 8, so grab your Bible if you haven't already. Uh, turn there with me. Amos chapter 8. I'll have a few words of introduction, um, probably as others are filtering in. It's always a slow start on a luncheon Sunday as people are getting their crock pots set up. I felt good, though, because um, Chris had to ask the same question that I had to ask. I brought the crock pot in, I got it about where it needed to be, and then, honey, should it be low or high? Should it be? You made me feel good this morning, Chris. Thank you. For me, it was low. So, well, yeah. <laughs> this is not a reflection of personality, I hope. This is, uh, uh, yeah. Or well done. Yeah. <laughs> Choose. Crockpot steaks. I like it. All right. So we're going to get started. Let me open with a word of prayer uh, before we turn and actually read our text for today. Uh, let's begin. Oh, gracious Lord our God, thank you for your word. Today we will hear you tell your people that you are sending a famine of the word of God and that they would search for it and not find it, and they would desire it and not have it. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us, even as we come this morning, for having your word and not desiring it, uh, for having it in front of us and, and having so many of them on our shelves and not taking them out and dusting them off and, and hearing what you have to say to us and not receiving from your hand the gracious uh, gift of your word and of your instruction for us. We pray that you would instruct us this morning we pray that you would fill us with your word, fill us with your spirit uh, to take your word and, and make it effectual uh, so that we would hear unto eternal life. We pray that you would help us to hear uh, a message of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray that you would soften our hearts before you, that you would, uh, you would temper our affections and draw our eyes to you and not to the things of this world. Oh Lord, we need your, uh, your saving power, having been called into the people uh, of your covenant, oh Lord, would you keep us? Would you make us uh, more and more faithful as you unite us to Christ, as you, as you work a good work through us that you have begun? We pray that you would carry it to completion on the day of Christ. And so do a part of that work today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing of speaking to us. Give us this morning, we pray, the blessing of hearing uh, and believing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in uh, Amos chapter 8, and before we read, uh, I want to just give a brief orientation. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, for some reason I feel like you guys are really far away today. Uh, I'm standing in the same place I always am. Uh, if, you were, if you were here last week, you heard uh, Steve Barry teaching on chapter 7, and you remember that uh, there, were, uh, there was a series of uh, visions. Uh, in chapter 7, there were three visions, actually three of the last five. In the last three chapters of this book of Amos really encompass uh, these five visions of the coming end. In chapter 9, next week, Lord willing, will be the culmination point for all of this. Uh, but um, what we see in chapter 7 is this beginning where the Lord uh, shows two visions first to Amos. He shows a vision of locusts, and he shows a vision of fire. And these visions that the Lord shows to Amos are so terrible that Amos intercedes for the people. Uh, he prays that the Lord would relent and he would turn from the disaster that he has declared, and the Lord does, and he relents. And then uh, finally he brings a third vision, and that third vision is the vision of the plumb line, where God is telling 
uh, his people, that he is going to judge his people in equity according to the righteous law that he has declared and according to the law and the word that they have spurned, he is going to judge the people in equity. And that's what he does, and that's what he shows, and that's what he's been proclaiming uh, to Amos. Well, well, today we're going to see really a continuation of that. Uh, we're going to see the Lord showing up uh, with another vision, uh, and this is, is bringing an end. So it's a vision of the summer fruit, a basket of summer fruit, and there's a play on words that we'll see, but the Lord is basically saying, look, this is the end. This is, this is the end of the people who have not listened to me for so long, and they have spurned my way and my law. Uh, and I am going to bring uh, judgment upon them. Um, the Lord declares that he's going to utterly destroy the people, and there will be in the land complete mourning and sadness and darkness and ruin over the people. And so there's really a continuation from chapter 7 uh, to chapter 8. There's the plumb line, and God says this is what the plumb line will be. It will be uh, a day of judgment. And then there's another continuation on the theme of chapter 7, uh, the second half of chapter 7 in Amos, uh, was this confrontation between Amaziah, uh, the priest in Bethel, and Amos. And you recall that Amaziah told Amos, no, 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 go away. Don't, don't prophesy here anymore. Don't say what you have to say because this is the king's land uh, and we don't want the king to be disturbed. And he was concerned that Amos was causing a ruckus in a place that he should not be speaking and, and prophesying that the word of the Lord would be something that would be unsettling. Uh, to the king and the thing that was going on in, in Israel. And so he tried to send him home. Well, in chapter 8, the same theme returns, uh, but this time is a warning from the Lord. We'll see in, in verse 11, the Lord says, I'm going to send a famine, and it will be a famine on the hearing of the word of God. The people have had immense privilege as the nation of Yahweh, but they have turned instead to the ways of the nations. They become like them. And now the Lord is taking away even the distinctions that the people of Israel have enjoyed. He is returning them to a status like the nations around them uh, who are devoid of the word of God and they are being punished for their idolatry and their oppression. And so what we're seeing really is a continuation, that it, that it, it follows uh, very closely on what we saw in chapter 7, uh, this idea that there is an end coming, that there is judgment according to God's righteous rule, and also that there is punishment that is uh, specifically related to uh, the word of the Lord. Now, as we get going, I'm going to ask you, uh, the first question will be, I'm just going to give you a, a heads up, uh, that, uh, that we see a lot of recurring themes, not just between chapter 7 and chapter 8, but throughout the entire book. And it really seems like Amos is bringing everything to a close. And so as we read through chapter 8, I want you to notice, uh, take note of what are the things that we've seen before? Uh, what are the things that the Lord is saying again now, maybe for the last time to his people, and what are the ways that he takes those things that he said before and he ratchets them up another level? Uh, that he has spoken to them, he has judged them, uh, but now he is coming and he is saying, but, but really you need to listen and really it's going to be worse than you can imagine it will be because your sins are worse uh, than you can imagine them to be. And so I want you to take note of the things that you've seen before, uh, the themes that are carrying over and the way that the Lord uh, is increasing these things. Now let's read together uh, Amos chapter 8, beginning verse 1 and reading through verse 14. This is what the Lord God showed me. <clears throat> Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence. 
Hear this, you people who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and From north to east they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Thus far the reading of God's word. So, uh, we have this, uh, this great adage in public speaking for what it's worth, and the adage is, uh, the first thing you do is tell them what you're going to tell them, and secondly, you tell them, and finally, you tell them what you've told them. Uh, and here we are in chapter 8 of Amos, and Amos is clearly uh, in the phase of telling them what he has told them. He is repeating several things over again. There is almost... Nothing in this chapter that is completely new as concerns Amos and his prophecy. He's coming back to some of these same themes, but they are intensified in some ways. And so what are the things that you saw as we went through there uh, that you say, oh yeah, I I remember this from earlier, and now the Lord is, is bringing things to a close. Now he's reminding these people again. What are the parallels now that you've seen from earlier in the chapter, and how are they being intensified? Cynthia, what do you see? I'm sorry, you see what? Oppression, okay, where at? And in what forms? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there is this doubling of, uh, of um, titles, um, not titles, identifiers maybe. Uh, the poor and the needy. Uh, you trample on the needy, you bring the poor of the land to the end, and then they're reversed in verse 6, that we may buy the poor for needy and the uh, poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And it, it's sort of the bracket around the way that they're treating the people. Uh, they're taking advantage specifically of the poor and of the needy, and we've seen this before. Where have we seen uh, oppression of the poor. How is this different than what we might have seen earlier? How is it similar? Yeah. 
Cynthia, did you have a particular place in mind when you saw that? Okay. You want to read that for us? Yeah, yeah, this same, uh, this same pair of people, uh, the needy and the poor. And so the Lord is calling them, um, and, and this same idea that they trample on the poor. And I believe, um, is this the same one, same chapter where it talked about trampling them down in the gates? They turn aside the needy in the gate, that's verse 12. Um, okay. What else? Dave, what are are the parallels that we're seeing here between chapter 8 and earlier? Or did you have a a different, something else to add to that? Yeah, go for it, Dave. Yeah, let's get us started. Today, not Namus's. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you may remember that as we began our study of Amos, I quoted uh, James Boyce, and it's been at least in the back of my mind the whole time that Boyce is talking about the the idolatry of things, uh, the terrible idolatry of things that pervades Amos and the way that people are going more and more and more after possessions. Now, the interesting thing about an idol, uh, the God that you have, whatever it is, is that uh, part of worship is sacrifice. Part of godly worship is sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And, and so how do we worship the Lord our God? Not with lambs and bulls and goats and things like that, but we still are called to make sacrifices, and that's uh, in, in part what, what worship is, uh, that you sacrifice one thing in order to pursue another thing. Um, and if that's true, if we could trace all of these things around, if there's an idolatry of things in Israel, perhaps in our culture, uh, what is the sacrifice that is being made for the people of Israel to worship their idols? Well, it seems to be the poor. It seems that they are willing to sacrifice the, uh, the good of the poor and the needy in the land, that they're willing to give them up, almost as the people of Israel in other times gave up their sons and their daughters to Molech and to Baal and all the, uh, the false gods. There was some sacrifice that was being made. Uh, and here it seems that, that their idol is possession. And they're willing to give up their brothers and sisters, the poor in the land that the Lord has called them to watch over uh, in order to, to go after these idols. And I think this is, yeah, this is a problem no matter when and where you live, uh, this, this disparity. The disparity itself, um, you know, difference in outcome uh, versus difference in opportunity to, uh, to ping on uh, one, of, one of your favorite guys. Um, 
but this idea of, of difference of, uh, of opportunity is a really terrible thing. Uh, when some have opportunity to advance and others don't. Um, but difference in outcome is, is maybe just the, the application of those opportunities differently. Uh, but still, we see this working in itself out in societies, and no matter what society you're in, uh, that uh, it's really an issue of the heart and an issue of the idols that you will serve uh, and the things that you will go after and what are you willing to sacrifice in order to get them. Good. So we've seen this, and this has been a pervasive theme uh, throughout Amos, this idea, what's wrong with these people? Well, they're trampling on the needy. Uh, not that, that they're just, uh, oh, well, I'm getting ahead and you're not, but I'm getting ahead at the expense of others, <clears throat> right? And, and it's, uh, it is this, I mean, this is a violent word, trampling. Uh, think, of, uh, think of just being crushed underfoot. Uh, you know, think of, uh, we can think of all sorts of terrible things, but th this is a, a violent idea that not just that you're getting ahead, but that you're, you're standing on the backs of those that you should be helping, and that's part of the oppression that's happening in, in Israel. Yeah. What about other parallels, John, that you see here between Amos and earlier in the book? Or do you want to... Yeah. And these are important threads that we need to tie together. Um, he, he has talked about a famine uh, of locusts. He's talked about um, the coming fire and all these things that Amos said, no, 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 these are too terrible. Don't do these things. And the Lord is now saying, I I'm going to send a different famine. Uh, and I think it, it depends on how you look at this and whether your senses are tuned um, by, um, by biblical ideals uh, which one of these famines you think would be worse? Would it be worse to have a famine of locusts to completely destroy the crops and, and to leave nothing? I mean, here's an agricultural society, right? The locusts come and, uh, and destroy it all, and, and you end up being like uh, the servants of Pharaoh in Egypt. Can't you see that the land is ruined? There's nothing left. Would that be? Yeah, that would be pretty terrible. Uh, but which would be worse, uh, a famine of locusts or a famine of the word of God? I think that the biblical answer is that a famine of the word of God is always worse uh, than losing and, and um, not being able to maintain physical provisions. Think back to, uh, uh, to what, in fact, let's take a look there. Um, oh, where is it? It's in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Everybody turn there, please. Deuteronomy chapter 8, in fact, let's begin at verse 1, and let's read through verse 3. Can I get somebody to read that for me? Thank you, Tim. Mm -hmm. 
content. So which, which of these is worse? A famine of locusts or a famine of the word of the Lord? Why? I mean, I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. But, but according to, to biblical principle, why is it so terrible to have a famine of the word of the Lord? Yeah. 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 Uh, I saw it. <laughs> Landon and then Tim. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that there is a magnitude of difference. Um, and you see this over and over and over again. Uh, and we, we spoke about this a while ago when the Lord is bringing these judgments against his people. Here are these covenant people that he said, uh, I love you and I care for you and you're my own special people and what I'm going to do to train you to turn back to me is going to, I'm going to destroy you. Uh, and from the world's standpoint, we say that, that's not fair, right? But, but the Lord is playing the long game. There is spiritual good and he uses even physical affliction to turn our hearts back to him because there is a magnitude of difference over which one is more important. Uh, and he's calling us to spiritual good and to spiritual life. Uh, and even if it should be that he should uh, desecrate the, the agricultural land and, and the landscape, yet by his word the people can live. Um, and, and not just physically, but spiritually. You know, there is a, a think about what the, the, the word of the Lord does. It actually changes things. He created everything, but in the space of six days, by the word of his power, God speaks and things happen. And so even if you have no food, even if you have no bread, even if the locusts have come, even if you're wandering through the wilderness with no food, the Lord can speak and give you manna. That's what he's teaching them. He's teaching them, you don't live by the provisions that you find in this world, but you live by what I say and by how I sustain you by my word. And so you don't have to worry about the provisions you find in life because God sustains his people. But if God doesn't sustain his people, there's no provision in this world that can save you. And this is, the, this is the disparity that we're finding here. The Lord is calling them to a spiritual good and to a spiritual life. And he's reminding them, uh, I, I'm able to do this by my word, and, and you need to focus on the things that are lasting and the things that actually matter. Tim. Thanks. Get us back on track, Tim. We're on track. This is, this is the track of Amos, right? This. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so did you want to you give us another parallel that you see here, and then I'll get to Jay afterwards? Yeah. Yeah, that was the inane question that I raised last week. Um, but we see it again, 
And this is clearly a statement of, uh, it, it harkens back all the way to chapter 1 and 2. For three sins of and for four. And so the Lord has been saying, I, I passed by three, but I'm not passing by four. And here we see it all the way at the end. He's circling back to how he began the entire, uh, the entire prophecy and saying, I'm, I'm not passing by anything else. And you see that parallel there. Um, the end has come upon my people. I will never pass by them again. And then you see it again. Um, verse 7, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. That's a scary thing. Yeah. 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 The psalmist tells us if the Lord should mark iniquities, who can stand? And if the Lord says, I will mark iniquities and I won't forget a single one of them. Um, you know, this is, this is sort of the opposite picture that we find in the scriptures of as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And there it's a statement of gospel grace through Jesus Christ that he takes those sins and he, he covenants never to remember them. But here in judgment, the Lord says, you've not turned to me, you've not come to me, and I will never forget your sins. It's the, it's the polar opposite of what we find there. And this is, this is terrible judgment. Um, and you think of, this almost speaks, and I think it, it could be applied to, to speak in that direction, of, of eternal judgment. Why is, why is judgment eternal? Because the Lord does not forget sins. Because the Lord is eternal. Because his character is eternal. Because any of our, our sins against him are sins against his eternal character and deserve to be punished eternally. And we don't like to hear that because it makes us uncomfortable, but that's the reality. That we are finite and our sins happen in a, in a finite sphere, but they are against an infinite God and against his infinite character. And the only just thing for an infinite God is to never forget those sins unless he lays them on Christ and, and casts them aside from us. Good. Jay, I saw a hand back there. Another parallel or are you going on, on a something we'd already said? Go on a tangent, Jay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and the word actually there, and I think it's in chapter 5, um, verse 13. Nope. <laughs> I have it somewhere. Chapter 5, verse 23. Take away from me the noise of your songs. The word is din. The people are so happy with their songs, and they love it, and their feast, and it, you know, you've been in a good party with good music, and it sounds good, and everybody feels good, and the Lord says it's noise. This is what I'm hearing. Uh, and their worship, they think, is so sincere, uh, but they're not worshiping in truth because they're, they're using worship as a cover uh, to oppress the poor in the land. Yeah, so we're seeing more and more. Uh, so he says, not only um, am I telling you to take them away, but he's saying, I'm going to overturn them. I'm going to turn them into mourning. I'm going to turn them into bitter sadness and the day into darkness. Good. It's a good parallel. Bill, did you have another one? Uh, I was uh, struck by verse 7 of chapter 8. Okay.
Yeah. Now here is, I'm glad you've raised that issue because this is a, this is a translational problem um, that, that many people have, um, have tried to remedy in different directions. I agree with you, by the way, um, but, <laughs> but other people have not. Who has the King James? Got the King Jimmy? Uh, what do we got there in verse 7? By the excellency. So the word here, pride or excellency, actually is that which is high, that which is exalted. Um, and, and you're on the right track, Bill. Hebrews tells us, uh, when the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, since there was nothing higher than himself with which to swear or by which to swear, the Lord swore by himself. And that's normally how it goes. And, and you, you pick something that is superior to you, and well, by the temple, by the, by the whatever, by the something else, and there is nothing superior to God, and so if he swears, normally he swears by himself. That is, that is the utmost that the Lord can, can do. And we've seen it actually twice already in the book of Amos. Uh, take a look back. <clears throat> uh, where was it? 6-8, thank you. 6, 8, uh, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord God of hosts. And there was another one in chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness. So twice already, the Lord has sworn by his holiness and by himself. And we spoke in chapter 4 about the fact that God's holiness really is himself. That's, uh, that's his character. And so in both of these, the Lord is swearing by himself. And then we get to chapter 8, and the Lord says, I have sworn by the the high stuff, the excellency or the pride of Jacob, uh, and, and how are we to understand that? How are we to interpret it? Is it literal? Uh, is it figurative? Uh, Bill's suggestion, and I've already tipped my hand, my suggestion is that it is, it is pride. Um, but, but what else could it be if it were excellency? Cynthia? Hmm. A good middle road. Thank you, Cynthia. <clears throat> oh. And this, this I think, uh, Jay is going to speak to that, and then, then we'll give my take on it. Jay? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That, that gets us all the way back to the beginning when we were talking about prophets being covenant lawsuit enforcers. Uh, that in each covenant there is blessing and there is curse. And if the Lord is swearing by that same covenant, um, and, and I think Bill is on the right, um, the right track. There's a phrase in one of the Psalms that, that calls the land the pride of Jacob. 
um, that if he's swearing by the land that he covenanted to give them, he's invoking those blessings and those curses. So uh, covenanting by himself. But we also have to level with the fact that, that in chapter 6, Amos has used this exact same phrase, the pride of Jacob. Uh, that's the nearest example we have here. And so that should really inform what we're thinking about. Um, and, uh, and he uses it in this sense of, I abhor. Here's something that's clearly not good. I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I hate his strongholds. And so maybe the, um, the land that they're so prideful about, uh, the strongholds where all of their military might is, and all the things that they think are going so well, the Lord says, I, if you won't listen when I swear by myself, if you won't listen when I swear by my holiness, maybe you'll listen when I swear by your sins, which are so odious in my sight. Um, because they're almost as eternal, it seems. The Lord comes to them over and over and over again, and they refuse to turn. They refuse to turn. They refuse to turn. I think it's this ironic picture the Lord is almost pulling out. Here's something else that is pretty much everlasting. Your sin never goes away, and so I'm going to swear by that. Uh, this idea, the things that you're, uh, you're prideful about. Yeah, but th this is uh, an interesting parallel here in, in the book. Dave? Yeah, whatever it is, it's not a good thing, uh, because this is, not a, uh, this is not a swearing, this is not a covenant of mercy, um, this is a covenant, um, chapter 8, verse 7, I will swear by the pride of Jacob uh, that I will never forget their deeds, and the land will tremble on this account. Um, and so there's this, there's this idea of um, what are the things you take pride in? Earlier it was uh, the pride of Jacob and the strongholds, that which is firm. And here's a parallel in chapter 8. It's that which will be shaken and which will tremble. The land will tremble. The things that you take pride in, the whole thing is going to be turned upside down and, and uh, demolished. Dave? Nahum 2.2. says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Uh, it could be that that's the same word, majesty and that which is high and, and excellent. Uh, I haven't looked into that, so I, <laughs> I couldn't speak to that. Um, interestingly enough, um, Nahum, everybody remember who Nahum is prophesied against? Easy to remember, mnemonic device. Nahum is against Nineveh. Uh, so Nahum is against the Assyrians. Uh, and the whole context of the judgment the Lord is bringing against the pride of Jacob is that he's bringing the Assyrians. And so later there's, a, there's an overturning, and he says, when I bring judgment against the Assyrians, I'm actually reestablishing uh, the pride of, of Israel. But I, I couldn't speak to that exact point, Dave. Other parallels that you see in, in Amos chapter 8 that you've seen before? Cynthia? Darkness. Okay. Where do we see it and where did we see it before? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, chapter 5, verse 20, uh, and beginning in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into his house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? The day of the Lord. And we, we spoke about the way that throughout Scripture there is this idea that on the terrible day of the Lord, he turns the, the, uh, the noonday sun into darkness. He causes the stars to fall from the sky. Uh, he, he causes all of these things to be overturned. Um, and yeah, he's, he's bringing back this idea, well, what is the end of the people? It's the day of the Lord. It's the day when the Lord comes in his, uh, in his righteous anger and sweeps away their sin. Now, interestingly... Um, Still, in uh, verse 20, um, sorry, back in chapter 5, the Lord has just talked about uh, the day of the Lord being darkness and not light, where he removes everything that has, uh, has brightness. And then look down beginning in verse 25. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kion, your star god. The images that you've made for yourselves, uh, there's a twisting of the knife in that phrase, images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond the Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Uh, hosts, uh, everybody understand what, what they're talking about there with hosts, uh, typically the heavenly hosts. When the Lord calls himself the Lord of hosts, he's invoking the heavenly armies, uh, and it was generally thought uh, not a liberal way, but a metaphorical way. How did you see the, uh, the heavenly hosts? Well, you looked up and you saw the stars. You saw the lights in the night sky. These are God's heavenly hosts. And, and he puts all the starry hosts in their numbers. And it's the same idea. And the Lord says, I'm the Lord of hosts, but you've been worshiping your star god, Kayan, and also Sikath, who was a sun god. And he says, in the day of the Lord, there will be blackness because I'm the one who's in charge of these things. And it comes up again in chapter 8, uh, that I will turn, in the, in the noonday, I will turn the sunshine uh, into darkness. I'll turn your feast into mourning, um, sackcloth in every waste, sorry, verse 9, and make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So what is the Lord telling his people uh, by his ability to do these things? What's he saying about himself? Omnipotent, says Bill. Absolutely. Are these star gods that you made for yourselves, he says. But on the day of the Lord, they'll all be taken away. All of these idols that you think are so wonderful, all these things that you've made for yourself to amuse yourselves, uh, when the Lord shows up, it will all be shown for the sham that it is, in emptiness. And this, too, is a, is a covenant curse. Take a look back. I know we're doing a lot of jumping around here, but this is, this is kind of what Amos is doing. He's tying together a lot of threads. Uh, take a look back at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 29. Who's got that for us? Tim again, thank you. 
Okay, so this is in the context, you remember at the very beginning, chapter 28 of Deuteronomy is where we find blessings for obedience to the covenant and curses for disobedience to the covenant. And all the way back in Deuteronomy, the Lord says, I'll make it like noonday. I will take out the stars of the heavens, um, and probably what he has in mind here um, is, it could be literal, it uh, could be a prophetic literal interpretation of the day of the Lord. Uh, but it's more likely exile. And the oppressors come in uh, and they do what they did to Samson. They put out your eyes and they take you to a foreign land and they attach you to a mill and you just work, you walk in a circle for the rest of your life. You will grope as in noonday and there will only be oppression forevermore. And the Lord is saying, this is what's going to happen. And I'm bringing my people to an end and I'm bringing all these, these threats and curses that I've said uh, upon you. Now, I, I want to give you uh, sort of a, a ray of sunshine, um, that chapter 9, we have not seen much of it at all in Amos, but prepare yourself for next week. Maybe we should take two weeks to look at it. Chapter 9 is mercy and light and promise. Uh, so we're getting there, uh, and it will show up, but today it's pretty heavy. Um, and we're seeing all of these things. The Lord says, I'm going to bring all these things against you, and I'm going to bring an end to my people uh, but chapter 9 will be the Lord himself. That's the vision that Amos has, and the vision of the Lord uh, in the temple building up rather than tearing down and restoring his people. So just, just a sort of to be continued for next week. Um, but anything else that we see here? Jay. Amaziah, chapter 7. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's not a learned man, but he clearly, uh, either naturally by God's mercy to him or through the Holy Spirit, he knows his Old Testament. Um, and think about, um, think about David. What a wonderful king he made because he said that he meditated on the Lord in the watches of the night. And you imagine David out in the field He's got no iPad. He's got no Facebook. What's he doing? He's, he's singing psalms. He's writing psalms, uh, but he's remembering God's promises. That's what he's meditating on. That's what he's spending his time doing. And here we've got Amos, a, a, a sheep herder and a, a dresser of sycamore figs out, out in the field somewhere. What's he doing? He's singing the songs of the Lord to himself. He's remembering God's promises and his covenants. He's remembering God's curses. He's listening to the word of the Lord, and he's able to bring it because the, the Holy Spirit works in him, and he brings it to a people that want nothing to do with it. And he takes it to Amaziah, and Amaziah says, come on, don't, uh, yeah, don't give us any of that. That's what they've been saying the whole time, by the way. This is really a culmination of a lot of what's been going on. Think all the way back in chapter 3. Let's take a look there, Amos chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 8, the lion has roared, who will not fear? Well, apparently Amaziah won't fear. 
The Lord has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? The word has to get out. But the problem in Israel, back in chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord says, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. What do the people not want? The word of the Lord. And what is the judgment that he's bringing against them worse than locust and worse than fire? A famine of the word of the Lord. I think this is something that we need to heed. We have the word of the Lord. Um, And even as I prayed this morning, most of us have more Bibles in our household than we know what to do with. You've got your different translations that maybe you pull out from time to time. Uh, and you've got an idea of what's in them, maybe. This isn't, this isn't everybody. There are lots of people here sitting in this room that love God's Word and take those Bibles off the shelf and dust them off and read them. Uh, but in many households, it just sits there. You don't learn God's Word by just having it on your shelf. That's essentially saying, well, we've got it, but I, I, I don't want to listen to it. I don't have time for it. I, don't prophesy now. I, I'm, I'm busy with the other things in, in my life. And the Lord is speaking to Israel, to his covenant people, and saying, if you continue to spurn the word of the Lord, here's the judgment, I'm going to take it away. You won't have the word of the Lord anymore. Imagine our our brothers and sisters, we're going to be praying for uh, Christians in Laos today. You think they can have a Bible where they live? You think it's not confiscated if the communist government finds it in their possession? You think uh, they're able to meet in, in public and gather in their churches? No. They're forced underground, and if they've got it, they've got to hide it. I'm no doomsday prophet, nor the son of a prophet. It could happen here, just like it can happen in all kinds of places. The Lord says, if you won't listen to it, I will take it away. That's the judgment that he gives to Israel. Chris, you were going to jump in.
Well, since you set up that soapbox, I might as well stand on it. Um, <laughs> this idea of the Sabbath, um, notice the dynamic here. Um, they're keeping the Sabbath, technically. They're not saying, glad we, glad we don't observe the Sabbath anymore. They're keeping the Sabbath outwardly, and yet inwardly they're saying, I can't wait until this is over so we can get back to perverting the scales. This idea of, of false balances. It says, make the ephah small and the shekel great. And that's, you, would, you would weigh your grain on a balance. And so you give them a smaller ephah. You don't get as much grain. And you weigh their shekel against a heavier weight. And so they need to shell out a little bit more. And, and you you'd sort of double dip on, on this poor product that you're giving them. And in fact, you sweep up some of the chaff and you throw it in there too. And, and you lighten the load a little bit more. That's what they want to do on the Sabbath and on the new moon. They're, they're, they're so scrupulous. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you do not pay attention to the weightier matters of the law. They're doing all these things. When will the Sabbath be over so that we can oppress? And I think we need to remember this as well, that, that uh, the Sabbath is a blessing of the Lord that we still have, uh, but it, it's not just meant... Uh, for our own enjoyment, not just meant for setting up something that we want to do and, and, uh, and feeling good about ourselves. And didn't we keep the Sabbath well today? Huh? Oh, my, my friends watch the football game, but I don't do that because I keep the Sabbath. Uh, and that's not what it's about. Uh, it's about loving the Lord in, in holiness and walking with him in humility. And this is what they were missing. They were turning the Sabbath into an opportunity to oppress. Uh, and perhaps we do that same thing uh, but maybe in a different way. Maybe it's, it's, not, um, maybe it's not unjust scales. Uh, but I think we still ought to think about how do we use the things the Lord has given. The Sabbath, God's word, uh, other opportunities to gather with his people, all sorts of things. Good. Any others before we close today? Any other parallels that you've seen, Tim? Hmm. 
You know, I, I, um, there is this parallel in a lot of what Amos is dealing with here. We, we covered the chapter, but maybe not, um, not in an orderly way, and if that unsettles you, I'm sorry. Uh, but I, th- I think it was good uh, just to jump around a little bit today. But there is, there is this theme in the famine of the word of the Lord. Notice that he says, um, Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to to east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. This is a parallel as well. What did the Lord give them? Well, he said, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all of your cities. I gave you lack of water in all of your places, and you would go from one place to another seeking water, and you wouldn't find it. Now he says, you're going to wander all over looking for the word of the Lord and not find it, and this is worse. And you think of, of words like Jeremiah chapter 29, that you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Um, and contrast that maybe with the, the judgment that's here, that, that there is a judgment that comes where even the seeking will not be rewarded with finding. And we find that all throughout Scripture. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Uh, you know, ask and it will be given. And the Lord's saying, it will be so bad that you will finally recognize your sin, but not in a way that you're coming after true repentance, but you're trying to just, just cover over and just find something good when you realize that your sin is as heinous as as I've been telling you all along that it actually is. And in that day, even your seeking will not be rewarded. That's a terrible judgment. That's a terrible, that's eternal judgment. That's eternal judgment seeking the Lord. This is Lazarus, uh, I'm sorry, the rich man in the pit of hell. Well, why don't you just send something? Just now I know what's going on. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in, uh, in the water and dip it on my tongue and there's a, there's a great chasm that cannot be spanned between you and us. There's nothing that can be done. There is a point at which all of this seeking, eternal seeking, will be unrewarded. This is a picture of hell. Uh, this, is, this is a picture of eternal damnation. And we need to take that to heart. But next week, there will be uh, promise and mercy, and there will be uh, good happiness stuff. So uh, let's pray together uh, today as we prepare for worship. Oh, glorious and righteous Lord, we are humbled by your word, by these visions that we've seen given to a people that indeed were destroyed by Assyria, never to be brought back. The, the southern kingdom brought back from, uh, from Babylon and some of the ones scattered among the four winds of the earth, but the people taken to Assyria and Assyria itself captured were, were never restored in the same way. And what a picture of of the damage of our sin and the reality of judgment forevermore. And, oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to see, that you would give us sensitive hearts that we would hear on the day that you call and that when you uh, call us uh, to come and to repent, that we would hear your voice and not harden our hearts as in the day of rebellion. Lord, would you be gracious and kind to your people, Uh, we who are called by your name not because of any good thing in us but because of your mercy. Oh, Lord, watch over us and keep us as we come uh, to worship in just a matter of of moments. 
as we will come and hear and confess our sins, we will hear you call us to worship. We pray that it would not be uh, a mere formality, but that you would cause us to worship in spirit and in truth. You would cause us truly to repent and truly to hear words of assurance. And as we come to the words of Christ, that we would hear a word of blessing today. Blessed are those who are poor and hungry. Blessed are those who weep and those who are hated for the name of Christ. Oh, would we be those who are blessed with him? And unite us to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.